0: Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church family. Well, just a little bit better. Good morning. All right. Need that kind of interaction this morning. I noticed Pastor Seth kind of called for some action, and I just noticed it was sort of quiet in the room, so... Um, We're here to participate together, to learn together, to dive into God's Word together. And as we just sang that song, I mean, just about all my life you have been faithful. I couldn't help but think about our text this morning as we talk about difficulties and hardships, and we just trust God and we walk in obedience that as we go through those things, man, he's, He's faithful. We come out on the backside of these things that we've been exploring in Matthew chapter 5, and we realize that He really is just a faithful and good God, even when we go through difficulties. And sometimes in those moments, we don't think He is. He really is. So Matthew chapter 5, if you have a Bible, and I trust you do this morning, turn with me. We're going to continue this series uh, in Matthew chapter 5, upside down. Right? We right side living in an upside down world, and Jesus is calling us to this radical transformation, this radical righteousness. I want to set this up just a little bit because I don't know about you, but as I've learned to walk and as I continue to journey with Jesus, I realize that Christian life has a lot of tension. You ever notice that? Just me. Okay. I will tell you about all the tension in my life as I try to walk with Jesus, but there's a lot of tension and we see it in this text, probably more than a lot of places in scripture because God calls us to a different way of living and and there's a point every day of our life that we have to kind of reckon with some of those things and we deal with those tensions. God says I should do this, but the world is pulling me in this direction. My sin nature and my flesh is drawing me to one thing, and yet the Spirit of God is drawing me to something else. So anybody else with me? Amen. Say amen. amen. All right, good deal. See, there's this tension, and there's always these tensions. And, and I don't know that we see in any place more concise and more compressed than we do in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he's unpacking and teaching this text. And so sometimes in our Christian life, we, we struggle with questions, and some of the great questions are when, what, and how. And so we're going to look at those three questions in the context of our text this morning. We've been talking about this radical transformation, this this idea that Jesus calls us to himself and he radically changes our life. There's this radical righteousness that he calls us to. And when we look at that kind of life that we see in scripture, I don't know about you, but sometimes in my flesh I'll go, I can't do that. Anybody with me? I can't live a life that's pleasing to God. I can't do the kind of things that Jesus is talking about. Is anybody with me? Just say it with me. I can't do it. Look at the person next to you and say they can't do it. They're not doing it. They haven't done it well. I'm really praying for them this morning. I know my wife's praying for me back there because it's like, God, oh, Dave, if you would just get it, right? Right? We're all in this process and we all deal with this tension and so as we look at the text this morning, I want to put it in context because it's always vital and important to understand the words that we're looking at and how do they fit. So the first thing I want to do this morning is I want to look at the call and answer the question when, when it happened. The, the call that God placed on your life is the same as uh, the call that he put on the disciples' life. And so as we're diving into Matthew chapter 5, we have to understand the context. Because Matthew didn't write the chapters, he didn't write the verses, he wrote the letter. And, and he put it all together. And the context of Matthew 5 is obviously Matthew 4, Matthew 3, Matthew 2, Matthew 1. And so we see the call of these disciples, because as we began chapter 5, it begins with the words, Now when he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down, and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. His disciples. Are you a disciple? Do you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ? These people did. Some of them were just intrigued, some of them were just... um, Curious about who he was because Matthew chapter 4, let's just back up in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18, it simply says in calling the first disciples, right, he, he extended an invitation, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Have, have you heard the voice of Jesus saying, hey, come and follow me? And then, and then he said, come and follow me and I will make you something. Do you, finish, do you feel like a finished work in Jesus? Or do you feel like he's continuing to make you into something? Every day I just kind of look in the mirror. I go, wow, you are a work in progress. Because God's not done with me. He's not done with you. But he's making me into something. And, and so Jesus then, in verse 21, called them. He, you know, first it was Peter and James and John. And so here we have the account of him calling these disciples to him. A little bit later, 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and, and John, and they were in a boat. They were fishermen. They were preparing nets. Jesus called them and immediately left the boat and their father and they followed him. See, every time you see someone who's called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, they're abandoning their life. They're walking away from everything that they had planned and what they thought was their purpose to follow Jesus. What about you? See, it's one thing to hear the call of Jesus, it's a completely different thing to surrender everything, abandon it, and actually follow him. It's a difference, as Pastor Scott has shared, between this radical righteousness or simply good acts, right? Jesus didn't call us to simply good behavior, he called us to radical transformation. And that's what Jesus is beginning to kind of scratch that surface just a little bit more, What Jesus is doing then is is exactly what he does today. He extends this invitation. You come and I'm gonna make you. You come and follow me. You abandon everything that you thought about life and purpose and you follow me and then I'm gonna radically transform you. I'm gonna make you into something different. How many of you are in this place honestly saying, God, you are free to make me whatever you want me to be? See, now in all honesty, not every one of us in this room is gonna raise our hand. Because some of us are here today with different motives and different intent. Some of you are here this morning very honestly just kind of going, I want to check my box. I do this church thing. That's what we do in American culture. Others have walked in with a broken and contrite heart and said, God, I know that you have a greater plan and purpose for my life. And God, I know that in my sin nature, I'm not obedient to you in all areas of my life. And I know that I'm holding things back. Right, The disciples, it says, they left their nets. They dropped everything and they walked away. Some of us haven't completely dropped everything in abandonment to follow Jesus. We hold on to certain things. We want to follow Jesus, but we have these tethers or these leashes that kind of hold us back to our old sin nature. And Jesus is simply saying, look, I want you to abandon everything. Because the radical transformation, this radical righteousness that you're going to experience won't happen if you're holding on to other things. So some of you this morning just need to lay down things. I do. If I'm really going to live this kind of radical life, I need to understand the calling. I need to understand when it happened. And I remember the time that Jesus called me very specifically. It was in a small church in northern Illinois. And I remember, I remember clearly asking my dad about knowing this Jesus. And he took me down to the boiler room of that little church, and I'd been there before for different reasons. <clears throat> And I remember as a little boy going, wait a minute, if Jesus is in that room, maybe I want to rethink this process. But what I do remember is that that little boiler room in that small church in northern Illinois took on a whole, whole different experience for me. Because I remember, I clearly remember getting on my knees as a little boy and inviting Jesus into my life. And regardless of how I have felt or how I've lived since that point, here's what I know is true. God's word is true. God is true. And God did in that moment exactly what he promised he would do. He came into my life. He took up residence, And he began a transformational work. He began to develop me, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, as Pastor Scott shared the Polaroid, he began to develop me into a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And that picture is not complete. But I remember the calling. When did it happen for you? Maybe this morning is when you're going to hear that call to say, yes, I need to walk away. I need to surrender my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Because everything else that Jesus is teaching in this text, he is teaching to those who've abandoned everything to follow him. Jesus' invitation is to a transformed life. He's not saying, I simply want to make you a new and improved, Dave. He says, no, I want to obliterate that, Dave, and I want to make you a brand new person. Sometimes we just want God to sort of clean up our tough edges, but keep all the other stuff, because that's pretty good stuff. But see, that's not Jesus' offer. He says, I'm going to take it all, and I'm going to change it all. And that's why so many people struggle with the Christian life. They don't lay it all down. They simply want the little parts of Jesus. They want the message that makes them feel good, those little Bible McNuggets they want to put on a plaque and hang on a wall. Those are the good things. But that's not Jesus' offer. Jesus is now creating in this message this separation, if you would, this tension between the old life and this new radical life. Living in surrender, giving over the motive, giving over the flesh to this new way of life in Jesus Christ. I absolutely love this quote from E.M. Bounds, an old pastor and author. Published about 11 books, but nine of them came after he died. And he died back in the year of 1913. So I just want you to say, this is over 100 years ago. Here's what he understood. And this has been my pinned tweet for the last three years because this has driven my life over and over and over. And he simply said this, men are God's method. Say that with me. Men are God's method. You see, while the church is looking for better methods, God is looking for better men. Folks, this was over a hundred years ago. And the church is looking for programs and ideas and curriculums and things. And while the church is looking for better methods, God's simply looking for better men. Men who are willing to lay down their life in abandonment and surrender. What he wants to do is he wants to battle. And that's what he's doing. He's creating this tension because he's creating a battle line between those that want to follow Jesus and those that don't want to follow Jesus. He's battling for what I refer to as simply authentic discipleship. People learning to deeply invest their lives in other people to see this radical transformation take place. Not to simply make one another feel good in our sin, but to say, look, God's called you to a higher standard. We all need those people in our life. And he's drawing us to something better. I've learned that men, amen, hey are you in the room? Men, are you in the room? Men, learn to be godly men in the presence of other godly men. You and I have a profound influence in the lives of others. You are having an influence. The question is not, am I having an influence? The question is, what kind of influence am I having? Men. Learn to be godly men in the presence of other godly men. There are men in this room that need you if you are walking in godliness and righteousness. I'm not saying perfection, but if you are striving to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, there are other men in this room that need you to walk that journey with them. Women, are you in the room? Women, thank you, thank you. Hey, get it. Women, learn to be godly women in the presence of other godly women. This is the discipleship process of simply saying, look, I understand that we're all sinners, but we're going to walk this process together. And in in this process, we're going to point out these beatitudes. We're going to point out these antitheses that Jesus is laying out. And we're going to be bold enough and honest enough with one another to point our sin out, surrender that to Jesus Christ, and continue to grow in radical righteousness. Are you willing to do that? Wow. Are you willing to do that? See, this is the difference between an authentic disciple making church. We can have a lot of people affiliated with Southbridge, but if we're going to activate ourselves to authentic discipleship, we need to embrace this idea that Jesus calls us to radical righteousness, and he does it in the context of authentic relationships with other people. That's the call, that's when it happened. Has it happened to you, or does it need to happen to you this morning or this week? See, we can't do it for you. No one can do it for you. It's a point at which you come to a place of absolute surrender to Jesus Christ. That's when. Let's talk about what. What will it look like? See, that's what Jesus then begins to unpack in this passage. What is it going to look like? And, And what he does is he deals with these commands, what does it look like? Well, I love what our pastor has said time and again, and we will hear it, I believe, more and more because it resonates his heart for this church is that spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. Spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. See, what Jesus is teaching as he's teaching these antitheses. He does it, as we looked at in the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 10... When we looked at that, we said, that's a framework. He, he's sort of saying, here's an outline, here's a framework of what I'm now going to expound on for the next couple of chapters. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. There's the framework, and now he's building on that. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's teaching us that I'm coming after you. I, I want to correct your understanding. I want to correct your thinking. And in order to do that, I will transform your life through my righteousness. So he's saying, look, this is not something you're going to put on by yourself. I'm going to do it if we look back at verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus is speaking, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, my righteousness applied to you through my shed blood on the cross will bring a transformed life. That's what he promised in his call. I will make you something. I will make you something new. And so his promise is, my righteousness is going to change you. My righteousness will do something to your life. When you choose to follow me, to lay it all down, I will transform your life. I'm not simply interested in your body. I'm not simply inter- interested in your outward actions, just your behavior. But I'm interested in your heart, your, your very motive, your mind. See, so you can't put on this kind of righteousness It's not just something you sort of put on as you walk in the the doors of the church on Sunday morning. This is the kind of stuff that affects our head and our heart, our actions, our motives, every day, every moment. So Pastor Scott unpacked four of these six. They're, They're called antitheses because they're just sort of statements or sayings. And Jesus is saying everyone, hey, you have heard it said this, but I say this. It's a great message. Just jump back online if you missed it last week and listen to those first four because it laid this foundation. A.W. Tozer once said Modern religion focuses upon filling churches with people, but the true gospel emphasizes filling people with God. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to so fill you, it's going to change the way you think. And so, Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and glorify your heaven. Glorify your Father in heaven. As he's unpacking these six antitheses, he's pointing back to that verse. He's saying, your life is going to be so radically different that people are going to glorify your God in heaven because your life looks different than everybody else. It's our what So Pastor Scott said real righteousness flows out of a radical relationship with Jesus. And last week, as he looked at the first four, he gave us four evidences. You don't have to get out paper. There is no quiz. You'll see all the answers on the screen. Are you ready? He said evidence one is that we seek radical reconciliation. Evidence two was that we have a radical response to sin. Three is that we have a radical view of marriage. And four was that we have radical lives of honesty. So these last two that Jesus is then speaking of, the evidence five, he says, you are radically secure in your kingdom identity. See, our identity is not found in the things of the world. Our identity is not found in the things that we do. Our identity is not found in our sin or our sin nature. Our identity is found in the kingdom of Jesus Christ because he indwells us and he changes us and he makes us something brand new. So we pick up our text in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Probably one of the most well-known but misunderstood passages in this scripture. But I say to you, do not resist the evil, the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, which was the most basic form of clothing right? They're going after your your very essence, he's saying. Then let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow. What is is Jesus talking about? Right? He's, He's saying, you've heard it said this. And what's he referring to? Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Exodus chapter 21, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, we have a foundational principle that that is often referred to as the law of retaliation, right? The law of retaliation. And the original law was fair. It was fair. It kept people from forcing the offender to pay a greater price than the offense deserved. It also prevented people from taking personal revenge. Let's just put it in practical terms. You ever been standing in line at a grocery store, or better yet, like Disney, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and all of a sudden, people just walk up and step right in front of you? At that moment, what is your wish for that person? (laughs) Thank you. I mean, seriously, at that moment, uh, all right, have you ever just been driving down the road and go, man, I am a great citizen? The speed limit is 40. I'm doing 39 and a half. I am so good. And then Pastor Scott and his Jeep comes flying around you (laughs) because he's thinking, what a jerk. You know, got to move it, got to keep traffic flowing. And it wasn't Pastor Scott, of course, but somebody that had a black Jeep just like his comes flying around you. (laughs) And they're flying down the road. And in that moment, you are thinking, I sure hope there's a speed trap right up there. Amen? Amen? Is there anybody else in the room who was that guy? (laughs) I was that guy. I was so frustrated driving down the road. And and sure enough, a peacekeeping officer (laughs) set out to protect me and to serve me. Served me a ticket. But see, in those moments, see, that's the whole point. This this law of retaliation, it kept people from forcing the offender to pay a greater price than than what happened to them. And, And it was so blown out of proportion, so Jesus replaced the law with an attitude. He said, be willing to suffer loss yourself rather than cause another to suffer. He applied this to personal insults, not to groups and not to nations. This is a very personal thing, this idea of retaliation. This law of retaliation was imposed um, by civil authorities, by civil courts to protect the public. In the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us that it was to punish offenders and to deter crime. You wonder why our crime rate is so rampant? There's no penalty for your wrong actions. And Jesus knew that the sinful heart was evil and that to help deter sin, we needed this law of retaliation. But people were blowing it out of proportions. Oh, man, you did something and you cut my hand, I'm going to chop your arm off. <laughs> oh, you did this to me. And, and, and out, of, out of retaliation and out of sin, they were, they were blowing it up. Deuteronomy chapter 19 says this is not to be administered by individuals, although sometimes in that day and age they would allow the individual to carry out the sentence. But it it was fair to help deter crime. In Proverbs chapter 20, it it tells us that it was intended to discourage private revenge. Right? The revenge, retaliation. Well, I didn't like what someone did, and so, uh, man, out of of retaliation, out of revenge, I'm going to go get them. Because they deserve it. (laughs) And the Jews, as he's speaking to, they were under the rule of Rome, who was occupying their, uh, had these occupying forces that that just lived with them. It was oppressive. And in that process, they, they would lose sight of the higher purpose. And they would begin to use the law of retaliation to justify their personal revenge. In other words, God said it's okay. God said it's okay if I execute judgment on you and I execute revenge and retaliation on you because you did something that was wrong. (laughs) Jesus then uses four illustrations. We're not going to take time to break them all down, but four illustrations from the everyday life of the disciples who were listening to him. Where the disciple is insulted publicly. He says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek. This is not about physical harm. This was more about insult. There was nothing more insulting or humiliating than a a slap in the face. And it was happening a lot because of the oppressive military presence. You see it in great old movies, right? The guy pulls out the white glove and slaps the guy in the face. And there's there's just this challenge. I'm going to... But it was humiliating. You know, what do you do in that process? And, and I think it's interesting because when he says, hey, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. You know what it's saying? Stay there. Stay there. In, in the moment, stay there. I don't know about you, insulting, humiliation. I want to run. I, I just want to remove myself from the presence. But what, the idea of staying there, the idea of turn the other cheek means you stay there. You stay in the moment. Why? Because Jesus is about to bring about resolution and reconciliation. He's about to use your life in that moment to point people back to the Savior, whose name is Jesus Christ. See, if I don't deal with it, this is not weakness. This is not a weak moment. This is a moment of strength, humility in Jesus Christ, finding my identity in him. I am so secure in my kingdom identity, I can stand the moment. Stand my ground and allow God to use me to his honor and glory. I don't have to retaliate. I don't have to get revenge. He goes on then to a legal setting. And if someone wants to sue you, I mean, and for, for your tunic, for, for the very basis of who you are the military scene. If someone forces you to go one mile, see in the day and age that Jesus is speaking to these disciples, it was appropriate and it was legal for a military person or an official to just recruit you on the side of the street and say, I want you to do this for me. I mean, there was a postal service in that process and they could say, hey, Brad, I want you to take this pouch and I want you to go a mile. They were allowed to do that soldiers could march through town and say hey i want i I want garrison i want you to pick up this pack and i want you to carry it for me and you, you were obligated by law to do that but out of revenge and retaliation their heart was wrong and jesus saying look if you have your identity and your security in the kingdom and who you are in jesus christ gladly pick it up not don't just go a mile go two miles probably the most Famous, well-known of this is Simon of Cyrene later in Matthew in chapter 27 where Jesus is carrying his cross through the town and and he can't do it anymore and so the soldier recruits Simon of Cyrene and says, hey, you pick up his cross, you carry it for him. See, that's the context in what Jesus is teaching his disciples. And then he gets on in the last one kind of relating to uncomfortable people. Anybody ever been around uncomfortable people? You've obviously never eaten tacos with me, okay? That can be really uncomfortable for you, but I'm really enjoying myself. Turn the other cheek. Best known and though, man, so often misunderstood. What it is simply saying is that sin needs a check against its destructiveness. It can do uh, in the lives of people such damaging things, but sin must be punished, yes, And Jesus is not denying justice in any way. He he will ultimately pay the penalty for sin. He will provide justice for our sin. I don't know about you, I've kind of been a fighter and I'm a little competitive by nature. Anybody else in the room? This has been tough for me through the years. Uh, I don't know if it's just God working in my heart or maybe I'm just old and Mellow, and I forget who I was mad at. I don't don't know. But this has definitely been a process of God working in my heart and working in my life. But see, Jesus says the ultimate example is me. I'm going to fill you with my righteousness, and then I'm going to set for you the ultimate example of non-retaliation. Don't seek revenge. So what did he do? Peter tells us so clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 23, he says this, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus willingly and freely accepted the justice of God the Father on behalf of our sin. And with no revenge and no retaliation, he accepted the abuse that I deserve. He accepted the death on the cross that I deserve because of my sin and you as well. And in that moment, here's what we have to understand, right? That was not weakness. That was strength. We just heard it in the Beatitudes, right? Meekness is not weakness. Jesus was not weak. He was incredibly strong in that moment because what he could have changed, he chose not to. Evidence six, then, is a radical response of love. A radical response of love. Matthew chapter five, picking up in verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Leviticus chapter 19 Jesus begins by quoting the central truths of the Old Testament. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. Later in in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus picks up that idea along with Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he's confronted by the Pharisees. These these lawyers trying to pin him, trying to test him, this legal expert says, hey, which is the greatest commandment? So Jesus goes back to Leviticus, Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6, and he replied, hey, love God and love one's neighbor as yourself. There's nothing wrong with that, so what was happening? Well, the next statement says, hate your enemies. Does the Bible say that we're to hate our enemies? No, it doesn't. But what had happened, because we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. We we don't see that we're supposed to hate our enemies. So, So what happened? What is he speaking to? He's speaking to a principle that began to creep into the church and into Scripture teaching, right, that God hates sin. That's true. The Bible says that. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. God hates evil. In fact, the psalmist takes it a step further in the next verse in Psalm 5, verse 5, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Does that mean that God hates that person? No, God loves that person. He hates sin. Why? Because he's a holy, righteous, perfect, perfect God. He can't allow sin to in his presence. He also knows that sin in your life and my life is destructive. There's a reason God hates the sin in my life because he knows he's created me for something greater and a greater purpose. And as long as I'm harboring sin in my life, I'm not honoring him with every aspect of my life. So he hates that. Are there things that God hates? He does. He hates sin. And yet he loves people. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 139, it's the idea that righteousness is, is beginning to be picked up. As, as we fall deeper in love with Jesus, we begin to love the things that he loves. We begin to hate the things that he hates. Psalm 139 says, Do, not, uh, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I, I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. There's this tension. There's this balance. As we grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ to love him, and to love people. It's it's a great church motto all around the world. Love God, love people. Anybody ever heard that? Love God, love people. That's not a mission statement. That's just a command. But let, let me ask you one simple question. How do you love people if you can't define love? Have you ever just seriously stopped and thought, how do I define love? I mean, think about it. If, if I were to say, hey, write a definition of love, how do you define love? Some of you right now, you're thinking, oh, 1 Corinthians 13. Nope. 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't define love. It tells us what love looks like when it's lived out in human relationship. There's only one place in the entire Bible that I have seen love defined. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm kidding. Thanks for those who are still with me this morning. <laughs> There's only one place I've seen it defined, and it's in the book of Ephesians. And God is using his favorite illustration, and that is of marriage. His relationship with his church. In Ephesians 5, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Well, that doesn't define love. But then he goes down a little bit further in in Ephesians 5, and he says, husbands, love you wives as you love your own bodies. For no one ever hated his own body, but, there it is. Now he's making a transition, right? You don't hate your own body, but now he's going to tell us what love is. So circle that in your Bible, but nourishes and cherishes it. I mean, think about how you love yourself, not in an egotistical way, not in an arrogant way, but what do you do for yourself out of love? You take care of yourself. You protect yourself. You provide yourself emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally. You take care of yourself. You go see Greg at Fitness 19 and he helps you get strong and healthy. We do things because we want to care for ourselves, we want to nourish and cherish ourselves. I love the way one pastor defined love. I heard him one time and he says, I define love as an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person in which I give myself to bring the relationship to God's intended purpose. You see, if we can't define love, how do we know we're loving people? I have three children, wonderful little sinners, all of them. And it was amazing. As a parent, I'm like, I never have to teach my children to sin. This is incredible. They're good at it. I never had to teach them to do that. But in my love for them, guess what I did? I corrected them. In my love, I disciplined them. In my love, I restricted them. In my love, I disciplined them. In my love, I nurtured them. In my love, I instructed them. In my love, I pointed them to a right path of living. In my love, I pointed them to the person of Jesus Christ, knowing this, I can't fix their sin, only Jesus can fix their sin. So what's my responsibility? To love them with the love of Jesus Christ and lead them to the one that can change them. You see, we live in a world that says if you love people, you just let them do whatever they want to do. Oh, yeah, you know, I, can't, I can't speak truth to them. I can't say that what they're doing is wrong because, well, that's not loving. we got to go give them a safe place. Listen, Jesus spoke truth in love. He sat with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and what did he do? He pointed out her sin. He spoke truth, but he did it lovingly. Hey, go get your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know right? I know. You're living with a guy. He's not your husband. You've had multiple husbands. Did he speak truth? Yes, he did. Did he say something was wrong? Yes, he did, but he did it with love. Here's the problem in the church. The problem in the church is we retreat. We don't understand what it is to live in a culture of sin and convey God's love and grace through our lives, so we retreat to our holy huddles, our small groups, our Bible studies, our curriculum-driven ideas, and we lob truth bombs out of the lost and dying world. And the world looks at us and goes, in the words of Pastor Scott, you're a jerk. Most of us that identify as a Christian in a lost and dying world, most people will look at and go, you're an idiot. You're an intolerant bigot because you don't know how to love people. And you know what? For the most part, they're right. Because we use the phrase, oh, love God, love people, but we don't understand what love is. See, we can speak truth, but we can do it in a manner that's loving and compassionate. But simply stepping into someone's life uh, on a one-time shot and simply throwing a bunch of truth bombs at them is not loving. So until you begin to walk the process with them, right? Imagine the guy who was just recruited by the military guy who's carrying a pack and said, hey, man, let me, let me walk a mile. Matter of fact, heck, let's go too. And in the process of doing these loving acts of goodness and service, I now have the freedom and the right to express God's truth to that individual. But see, we don't want to do that. We don't want to step into people's lives that are messy and don't look like us. We want to hang out with people who look like us, have the same loves, the same interests, and the same desires. What Jesus is calling us to is a radical righteousness that says, you know what? I'm willing to step outside my comfort zone, the areas that I feel so good about, and I'm willing to step into messy people's lives and walk the journey, carry the backpack. Let them slap me in the face. Do all the things that are necessary, but in that process, I will have the platform to convey God's love and truth to them so that they will glorify my Father who is in heaven. That's radical righteousness. How many really, really lost people do you know? How many really, really lost people are you walking a journey with that don't look like Jesus, they don't look like the church, you'd probably freak out if they wanted to come to church with you? We need to have those people in our life because that's what we're doing spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation let's go saturate our culture with spiritual transformation that's what jesus is calling to my friend pastor kenny luck in a summary was actually came out in his devotion the other day and I thought, man, this fits so well with what we're, what we're looking at. He, he said this, God's dream for you is to look like this. You have influence without ego. You are capable of retaliation, but you choose reconciliation. You pass up power to increase God's influence. You submit to God's plan versus presuming them. You freely notice others. You empty yourself instead of being self-entitled. You are willing to take the hit in humble obedience to God's purpose. You are able to wait for God to honor your efforts in his time. Jesus brings clarity to the call in verse 48. The clarity, how it will come about. How in the world is this spiritual transformation to come about? Here's what he tells us. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect. What? I'm done. (laughs) What? What? How in the world, how in the world, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, the ultimate expression of what Jesus is teaching is the command to imitate the Father. The the Greek word that Jesus uses here is literally to having reached its end, to mature, to complete, or to perfect Now, some people will look at this a little bit different because they'll say, oh, this is just like maturing in Christ. No, it's not because it's the exact same word Jesus used for you being perfect as God being perfect. Jesus could have used two different words here, but he didn't. He used the same word for your perfection as he did for God's perfection. So what is he saying? Well, I I love it, right? We have to dive into it. The goal for the spiritually mature disciple is to behave like his father, to experience this spiritual transformation, which is a pending question for us. Are you moving towards spiritual maturity and replication in Christ? Most of us get to a place where we're just comfortable and we just want to stay there spiritually. Jesus is saying, nope, there's, there's more to the journey. I'm pushing you outside your comfort zone because there's just a little bit more the journey. And Jesus could have used the present imperative tense, right? Keep being perfect or be continually perfect. But that would place an impossible demand on you and me because I can't be perfect. So he didn't use that. He used the future tense, and it holds out an emphatic goal for me as a disciple to shape my entire life around the person of Jesus Christ. Keep striving. It, it place this idea as a goal to say, hey, nothing less than perfection of God is my ultimate objective. All my behavior, all my thoughts, I'm, all my will, my, my future objective is to be perfect as God is perfect. It doesn't put the pressure on my imperfection right now. Is anybody else in the room imperfect? Say amen. Amen. Saying not me, but my neighbor. Anybody? Okay. See, following Jesus, he's going, look, this is a command, but it's also a promise, and it's also a statement of hope. It is a command. Be perfect as God, your heavenly Father, is perfect. It's a command. It's an objective It is a promise that that this is what I'm going to do in you. My righteousness in you is going to make you into something. But it's also this incredible statement of hope. So Jesus brings us to a little bit of an impasse right here because he clarifies his calling. Following Jesus Christ inevitably is coming to a crossroads. It's coming to that place where you will choose who you will live to please, Will you choose to live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to your heavenly father? See, Jesus, I love this because he's absolutely honest as he lays out the cost. He, he's laying out the cost and he's saying, Dave, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to surrender yourself to live in radical righteousness and allow me to transform you from the inside out?